This podcast is supported by Evernorth Health Services. Tonight on 360, new CNN polling, which shows which Republican candidate does better against President Biden, why she likely won't face him, and what voters make of their choices. Also tonight, the mother of a school shooter on trial for involuntary manslaughter takes the stand what she said today in defense of her parenting. And later, and just in time for our election, CNN's Doni O'Sullivan brings us a story of a recent election elsewhere, which was touched by AI deepfake technology. And the candidate is warning us to brace for impact here. Good evening, everyone. John Berman here in for Anderson. We begin tonight with fresh evidence for anyone who believes, for better or worse, that the Republican Party is not on its way to nominating the strongest candidate against President Biden. New CNN polling. Now, as with all polling, it's just a snapshot, but it does follow a trend. In it, President Biden trails Donald Trump by four points, which is just outside the margin of error. That's the same as it was as far back as last, last October. On the other hand, when matched up against Nikki Haley, that gap widens to double digit, 13 points, 13 points versus four points for Trump. Her problem continues to be persuading Republicans, even in South Carolina, her home state, where she is the underdog in the primary there later this month. CNN's Jake Tapper spoke with her earlier today. Why doesn't this electability argument seem to mean more to Republican voters, do you think? Well, I mean, that's the argument we're trying to make. I think the reality is 70% of Americans don't want to see a Biden-Trump rematch. I mean, that's just a fact. The fact that we would have two 80-year-old candidates running for president is absurd. And one of those candidates, President, president Biden, was in Warren, Michigan today, speaking with auto workers, trying to capitalize on last week's endorsement by their union, the UAW, in what is expected to be a tough battle in that state this November. With me here now, CNN political commentator and former Trump White House communications director, Alyssa Farah Griffin, also in Columbia, South Carolina tonight, the pride of South Carolina, CNN political analyst and former Palmetto State lawmaker, Bakari Sellers. Alyssa, let me start with you. The poll is what the poll is. In all the polls seem to say that Nikki Haley beats Joe Biden by much more than Donald Trump does. I'm going to ask you the same question that Jake asked Nikki Haley today. Why doesn't that seem to matter? I mean, this is the conundrum of this race for Republicans. We have seen there have actually been even bigger margins. At one point, she was 17 points ahead of Biden in a head-to-head matchup. But the problem is, as we live in this, the right lives in this media ecosystem where they just believe a different set of facts. And if you surround yourself with folks just consistently saying Trump is the best fighter, he's the most capable, and you've got all these congressional endorsements saying that as well, I think voters start to believe it. And they'd honestly rather risk losing with Trump than winning with Nikki Haley. His rock-solid hold on the Republican Party feels unbreakable, despite the facts that Nikki Haley is hands down a better candidate. So, Bakari, last night, James Carville was sitting with me here saying that the longer Nikki Haley stays in the race, the happier he is. Do you agree? Is she hurting Trump in a way that could help Democrats? First of all, the pride of South Carolina is actually in Auburn, Alabama. Her name is Don Staley right now, but that's neither here nor there. She's coaching tonight. Uh, but I will say this. I, I actually agree that, that Nikki Haley is doing the bidding of Democrats as we sit here today. And I'm sitting back and I'm enjoying it. The longer she stays in this race, she's weakening Donald Trump. I mean, uh, Donald Trump, and let's just say I, I play devil's advocate and the devil really doesn't need any advocating. But the reason that Nikki Haley is doing far better in these polls is that Donald Trump has lived with the scrutiny since 2016. That light has has been very bright on everything that he's done. 
We've gone in his history. We know who Donald Trump truly is. That light has not shone, shone brightly on on Nikki Haley just yet. And so that's why she's still doing that much better than Joe Biden. But look, if the Republicans don't want to choose the best candidate or the person who fares the best, then so be it. This is the result of what uh, the Republican Party has become, which is, and I don't use this term lightly, but they become cult-like, um, just following people off a cliff. This, this is not... Uh, this is not rational. This doesn't make political sense. It doesn't make good common sense. But then you have people who are supposed to be intelligent, who represent, represent us in the halls of Congress, who are, who are following this circus as well. So look, as a Democrat, we want to run against Donald Trump. We want to run against Donald Trump badly. And thank you, Nikki Haley, for staying in the race and continuing to wound him. What specifically, Bakari, or how specifically does she wound him, do you think? Because she's using a lot of the same lines and, and attack lines about his character. And so what happens is if Bakari Seller says, look, uh, Donald Trump is old. Uh, Donald Trump is beyond the pale. Uh, Donald Trump, uh, the E. The Jean Carroll uh, defamation suit was was right and just. Uh, when we begin to hear these character attacks on Donald Trump that come from somebody who has the conservative credentials of Nikki Haley, they may start to stick. Mm -hmm. Now, they're not going to stick with the people who wear those little uh, red hats, but they will stick with people like suburban women, independent voters, college-educated white women, those people who we need to vote for Donald Trump. The best messenger on this may not be Bakari Sellers or Joe Biden. I mean, the best messenger is actually Nikki Haley. Go Nikki. <laughs> One of the first times I think, Bakari, you've ever said that in South Carolina. Uh, Alyssa, you know, Jake, Jake Tapper also asked Haley about Trump's political action committee paying about $50 million, picking up the tab for his legal bills. Let's listen to that exchange. It is unconscionable to me that a candidate would spend $50 million in legal fees. It explains why he's not doing many rallies. He doesn't have the money to do it. It explains why he doesn't want to get on a debate stage because he doesn't want to talk about why he's doing it. It explains why he had a temper tantrum, um, you know, the election night of New Hampshire is because he wants me out of the race and he wants to be the presumptive nominee so that all of that cash starts going to him and he doesn't have to spend anymore. Where's like unconscionable temper tantrum? They weren't around. A month ago, Listen, they really weren't. I love this Nikki Haley and taking a kind of different approach than Bakari here. I think it's important for the country. I think hearing a credible conservative two-term former governor tell the truth about Donald Trump. But listen, he's running for president to stay out of jail, and he is using his donors to pay off his legal bills. <laughs> like, that is literally what Do is voters happening. voters care? I, the problem is I'm not sure voters care. Just for an example, the Florida legislature, some Republican members, introduced a bill to make the state of Florida pay for his, his bills. Now, it's not going to happen. DeSantis would veto it. But that just shows the diehard fans. They think they are defending him. They think this is a witch hunt. They need to be with him. And once again, the fault does lie with other elected Republicans for actually saying these cases were witch hunts, for not coming out and telling the God's honest truth that he mishandled classified documents or the truth about January 6th. So we've re we are reaping what we're sowing here. And, yeah, he's going to enter this general election with the money, with, not with the money that he needs to win. And, Bakari, let me ask you a question specific to South Carolina, because there's a new South Carolina poll which shows Nikki Haley trailing badly there, 58 to 32. I always wonder about South Carolina, and maybe you can explain this to me. There's no party registration in primaries there, yet we don't see what we see in New Hampshire, where you've got this massive crossover voting in primaries there. Could there be this time? Could you see Democrats and moderates coming out to save her in the Republican primary? Absolutely not. I mean, Democrats aren't going to waste their time voting on 
February 24th. I mean, we're going to vote February 3rd in the Democratic primary. But the parties here, unlike maybe New Hampshire or some other states where there is just a shade of difference between Democrats and Republicans, there's a stark contrast between um, Democrats and Republicans in the state of South Carolina. And Democrats know Nikki Haley. I mean, we remember Nikki Haley for being the one who didn't accept Medicaid and, and hospitals shut down. I mean, we remember the assault on the poor. We remember the assault on women. We still have a quarter of shame under Republican leadership. So Democrats aren't fools and are going to play this national game. I do think, though, that to to the point that was made a minute ago, Donald Trump actually is very scared of Nikki Haley. And South Carolinians know uh, that, that Nikki Haley is a very shrewd politician. I think most people would want to see Nikki Haley and Donald Trump on the stage together, but we know that's not the case. I was watching Griselda the other night, and Pablo Escobar said that there was only one man that he's ever been afraid of, and her name was Griselda Blanco. I believe there's only one man that Donald Trump is afraid of, and her name is Nikki Haley. Kari Sellers, as I said, for me, the pride of South Carolina. Liz Fair Griffin, great to see both of you tonight. Have a wonderful evening. Keeping them honest, we give you a lawmaker saying the quiet part out loud and using the president's poll numbers to justify it. Why would we do anything right now to help him with that 33%? Do you believe if Joe Biden's approval rating was at 53%, we would even be talking about the border? That's Texas Republican Congressman Troy Niels when asked about backing the bipartisan Senate border bill and military aid package for Ukraine and Israel, which now looks close to a vote. Discussions are going well, so I want members to be aware that we plan to post the full text of the National Security Supplemental as early as tomorrow, no later than Sunday. As for the timing of the vote, I plan to file cloture on the motion to proceed to the vehicle on Monday, leading to the first vote on the National Security Supplemental no later than Wednesday. Now, whether it gets the 60 votes needed to even proceed to debate is unclear. What happens if and when it hits the Republican-controlled House, however, is not. From Congressman Niels right up to House Speaker Johnson, the bipartisan measure faces stiff Republican opposition. That's to put it mildly. Even though, as Republican Senator Lisa Murkowski said yesterday, reaching this deal is precisely what House Republicans asked them to do. Even though the top Republican negotiator on it is a rocked rib conservative senator, James Lankford, who recently described it this way. This bill focuses on getting us to zero illegal crossings a day. There's no amnesty. It increases the number of Border Patrol agents, it increases asylum officers, it increases detention beds so we can quickly detain and then deport individuals. It ends catch and release. It focuses on additional deportation flights out. It changes our asylum process so that people get a fast asylum screening at a higher standard and then get returned back to their home country. So this is what Congressman Niels is speaking out against, a bill neither he nor any of his House colleagues have even seen, by the way. Texas Congressman Niels, it should be noted. And as a side note, though, he also has policy differences on the issue, preferring House Republicans' original bill. It's, it's not the first time he's voiced his partisan political motive for opposing the Senate compromise. Almost a month ago to the day, he told CNN, quote, let me tell you, I'm not willing to do too damn much right now to help a Democrat and to help Joe Biden's approval rating. As we and others have been reporting, and as a number of Republican senators allege, that's also the former president's motivation, Donald Trump's motivation, none of which is sitting well with another Republican in the Texas delegation. I'm extremely disappointed in the very strange maneuvering by many on the right to, to, to torpedo 
uh, a potential border reform bill. That's that's what we all ran on doing. So if we have a bill that decreases illegal immigration, that's an if, right? We, We need to see what's in it. But if we have a bill that on net significantly decreases illegal immigration and we sabotage that, that is... That is inconsistent with what we told our voters we would do. And, 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 and people will make up whatever reasons they, they want to. There's a number of them, I'm sure. But it would be a, a pretty unacceptable dereliction of, of your duty. Congressman Crenshaw also had this to say about critics of the deal. Quote, the height of stupidity, he said, is having a strong opinion on something you know nothing about. More now from CNN's Melanie Zanona, who joins us from the Capitol. Melanie, uh, is this move by Senator Schumer to have a vote next week likely to force Republicans' hand? Well, it's certainly going to be a showdown. Chuck Schumer said we are expected to see that long-awaited bill tax sometime over the next few days. And then the Senate is expected to start voting on this package early next week, with the Senate even adding some days to its schedule in order to anticipate this vote next week. As a reminder, this package not only is going to include that border security deal, but also aid for Ukraine, Israel, and Taiwan, which is what President Biden had initially requested. But it is very unclear whether this is actually going to pass. As a reminder, anything needs 60 votes in the Senate in order to advance. But this package is already facing opposition from the right, from former President Donald Trump, and even from the left, with some Democrats concerned that this conservative proposal goes too far in heeding to some of Republicans' demands. And even if it passes the Senate, John, this bill is dead on arrival in the House. So right now, there's just a lot of uncertainty about the path ahead, but there are some growing doubts, even among Republican leaders, that this ultimately is going to wind up on Biden's desk. So what is plan B if or maybe when this package fails? Well, I mean, there is some talk among leadership about trying to split off the bill and try to do a standalone bill just for Israel and Ukraine. But even that is likely to face headwinds inside the GOP because there's many Republicans who are resistant to more Ukraine aid. That is why there was this effort in the first place to try to pair Ukraine aid with border security policy changes, something that Republicans had been demanding, something they've been campaigning on, something that they've wanted for many decades, really here on Capitol Hill. But ironically, John, those same Republicans who were demanding that those two issues be linked are now the same Republicans who are criticizing and throwing cold water on this deal, even though it has yet to be released, John. Lucy and the football. Melanie Zanona, thank you very much for that. Next, she is charged with involuntary manslaughter for what her school shooter son did, what Jennifer Crumley said today on the stand in her own defense as a parent. Later, of the seven migrants charged with attacking two New York police officers, four tonight may be fleeing. New reporting on their possible whereabouts ahead on 360. All There Is with Anderson Cooper is supported by Evernorth Health Services. Grief is a human experience. Shouldn't the care we receive feel human too? That's why Evernorth Behavioral Health ensures all members have access to live, specialized support anytime in person, or virtually, with a 100% follow-up commitment to make sure that they get the help that they need. So no matter what stage of grief your employees may be in, there's always a person ready to listen. Stressful times can lead many to bottle up complex feelings, especially at work. 59% of those suffering say nothing. This can have unexpected and serious mental and physical health implications. And with Evernorth's data-driven risk monitoring tools, they can help spot challenges early and step in to guide individuals to care 
before they undergo any more suffering. Each person's grief is as unique as they are, which is why Evernorth offers a wide range of personalized behavioral solutions to meet the needs of every member that they serve. Learn more at evernorth.com slash grief support. All There Is with Anderson Cooper is supported by Evernorth Health Services. Grief is a human experience. Shouldn't the care we receive feel human too? That's why Evernorth Behavioral Health ensures all members have access to live, specialized support anytime, in person or virtually, with a 100% follow-up commitment to make sure that they get the help that they need. So no matter what stage of grief your employees may be in, there's always a person ready to listen. Stressful times can lead many to bottle up complex feelings, especially at work. 59% of those suffering say nothing. This can have unexpected and serious mental and physical health implications. And with Evernorth's data-driven risk monitoring tools, they can help spot challenges early and step in to guide individuals to care before they undergo any more suffering. Each person's grief is as unique as they are which is why Evernorth offers a wide range of personalized behavioral solutions to meet the needs of every member that they serve. Learn more at evernorth.com slash grief support. In this country, no parent has ever faced involuntary manslaughter charges for a school shooting their child carried out until the parents of Michigan's school shooter war, which means until Jennifer Crumley took the stand today, no mother has ever had to testify in her own defense in connection with the deadly actions of her son. More now from CNN's G. Casares. That was the hardest thing I had to, to stomach, is that my child harmed and killed other people. The mother of the Oxford, Michigan shooter who killed four high school students in 2021 for the first time defending herself in court. I've asked myself if I would have done anything differently, and I wouldn't have. If you could change what happened, would you? Oh, absolutely. I wish he would have killed us instead. Jennifer Crumbly charged with four counts of involuntary manslaughter after she and her husband got a gun for their 15-year-old son days before the massacre. She has pleaded not guilty and appears to be shifting blame to her husband in her testimony. Who is responsible for storing the gun? My husband is. Okay, explain why you say he's responsible for that role. Um, I just didn't feel comfortable being in charge of that. It was more his thing, so I let him handle that. Crumbly maintained she had no reason to believe her son was a danger to anyone else. As a parent, you spend your whole your whole life trying to protect your, your child from other dangers. Um, you never you never would think you have to protect your child from harming somebody else. That's what that's what blew my mind. She recounted the moment her husband called telling her the gun was missing. Instantly it just I'm like, oh my gosh, she's he's got the gun. I didn't actually think he was at the school shooting it. I thought maybe he walked home and got the gun and was in the field by the school shoot. I just, I didn't imagine my son actually going into a school and shooting. And then when we got more updates, I was like, oh my gosh, he's, he's a school shooter. He's going to kill himself because in my mind, that's what school shooters have done. They've killed themselves after. So I yelled in my talk to text, Ethan, don't do it because I thought he was going to kill himself. Revealed in court before Crumbly took the stand, yeah, there were, there were journal there. entries of the shooter um, just days before he opened fire, yeah. killing so four classmates. He writes, I have zero help for my mental problems, 
and it's causing me to shoot up the effing school. My parents won't listen to me about help or a therapist. The journal seen here was found in the shooter's backpack that he brought with him that morning, spilled out on the school's bathroom floor. However, Jennifer Crumbly testified her son never asked her to get help for mental health issues. Do you recall there ever being a time where he asked you for go to go to a doctor or to get help and you said no? No. Or left at him? No. There was a couple of times where Ethan expressed anxiety over taking tests, um, anxiety about what he was going to do after high school, but not, not to a level where I felt he needed to go see a psychiatrist or a mental health professional right away, no. Crumbly described threats she says she and her husband received after the shooting. I was feeling pretty scared. Okay, scared of what? Um, well, scared that somebody might hurt us. The defense also attempted to portray Jennifer as a normal mother. Every year for around uh, Thanksgiving, I always cook Thanksgiving dinner. Um, the day after, we would go cut our Christmas tree down. He was a big history buff. Um, we can play trivial pursuit, and he would get me in history every single time. And Gene Casares is with me now. Gene, what do we expect tomorrow during cross-examination? First thing, tomorrow morning cross-examination by the prosecutor. I think it's going to be long, extensive, scathing. She's going. The prosecutor is just going to try to get every hole that they could find from that direct examination. Key points? I think key points are, are many involving the gun because the, the gun case was open. She talked about the cable lock that was always on it. We see the gun case was open in the master bedroom on the bed. So Ethan took the gun. But where's the cable lock? We don't see that anywhere. If it was locked all the time, wouldn't you find it? And I think and many other things they will focus on. All right, Gene, stick around for a second. I want to bring in CNN Chief Legal Analyst Laura Coates, anchor of the aptly named Laura Coates Live, coming up <laughs> at 11 p.m. live. Uh, Laura, what did you make of Jennifer Crumbly's testimony today, specifically her references to her husband and the fact that he purchased the gun and was responsible for storing it. I was really riveted by today's testimony because I was wondering what she would say, how she would appear, what would be her demeanor, how she would respond to the give and take of the questioning, how she would turn to the jury, how she would present herself. Would it be sympathetic? Would it be self-assured? And a lot of it came out in how she actually relayed the story, particularly on the point you're talking about. Notice her husband and her are not being tried together. That should have been the first clue. You're going to have a little bit of finger pointing to suggest it wasn't me. I'm not the one responsible. I'm not the one at the end of the day holding the bag. She referenced not only him having purchased the gun, but also perhaps his knowledge of being the person is his thing. Guns were his thing. She wasn't comfortable with it. She deferred to him on these issues. Also, she pointed towards the school and their handling of that day, that fateful day, the different drawings and beyond. There, what seeming to her was a lack of urgency. Their sage advice about prospective treatment in the future, but not actually talking about a real, present, and imminent threat to bodily harm and death. And so I think she was looking at a way to suggest that, look, if I am the person who is supposed to be blamed, well, there's blame to go around, and I didn't have the knowledge. In fact, she talked about, and Eugene's book says, well, there were moments in the discovery process, a fancy way of saying when the prosecution has to give you evidence they're going to use against you, it was not till then, she says, she learned about some of the troubles he was facing at school. And so without that foreseeability and that notice, she's trying to make the defense that I had no idea. And had I known, had I known, I would have been armed with the appropriate tools, but I didn't. Gene, the judge ruled that the shooter's two jail psychiatrists will not 
be able to testify. Why is that significant? Well, this is significant, just what Laura is saying, because once he was arrested and he got in jail, he told his psychiatrist there, yes, I texted to my friend that I asked my parents for help and they wouldn't help me, but I was lying. I, I really didn't ask him. And there's other things that are not coming in. He wrote in his journal that he was researching and he wasn't sure if he wanted to be a serial killer or a mass murderer. He said, I think I'm gonna be a mass murderer, but he said, I was born this way, he writes, and no one can stop me. That's not coming into this trial before that jury. And Laura, there was a moment at the end of proceedings today which really piqued my interest. The defense attorney told the judge that she and her client did not agree about how to handle the rest of the defense's case. So what do we think that means? How common is it? And why would a defense lawyer say that? That was a really important moment. I'm so glad you noticed it because the lawyer is in charge of the legal arguments, obviously, the strategy overall, but they must defer in many respects to have that client-attorney relationship maintained. She was signaling to the court in no shortage of terms that, look, we have a real disagreement about the rest of the people who will testify in this trial, what she might use as evidence and who might take the stand. Perhaps the lawyer is saying, look, you may want to call that person. You may think that person is helpful to you. But remember, you can be attacked on credibility. They can be impeached, not just a political term, but in a courtroom to mean that their credibility is attacked, that something as a part of the trial has already come up, that you open the door for the prosecution in their rebuttal case after we as defense to come and use against you. So that could be a real um, at-odds moment there. But also there's a really interesting moment, too, and the, all the discussion mm -hmm. about hallucinations and whether he was somebody who was not in his right mind throughout. She really downplayed discussions on this, and I wonder how that will play in later in the trial. All right, Laura Coates, we will see you at 11. G. Casares, thank you very much. And one note, this cross-examination will happen tomorrow starting at 9 o'clock. You all can watch that on CNN News Central, and I'll be there for that. Ahead, new developments in this attack on two New York police officers over the weekend. Seven migrants charged and word now that four may be trying to flee. Our John Miller joins us with the very latest on that. Plus, the House Ethics Committee investigation into Republican Congressman Matt Gates may be expanding. As a source says, they have someone who was once very close to him. They now want to question. Details ahead. The fight over the border security bill takes place as a senior law enforcement official tells CNN that four of the seven migrants charged in this attack last week on two New York police officers. They've left the city and they may be fleeing to Mexico. They are believed to be headed by bus to California. The officers are trying to break up a disorderly group outside a migrant shelter near Times Square. We're joined now by John Miller, our chief law enforcement intelligence analyst. He's also a former NYPD deputy commissioner. John, what are you hearing from your sources tonight? Well, what we're seeing is kind of a clash, a collision of themes that have really deeply affected New York and the country while Congress talks about a border bill. One is the, uh, the waves of migrants who have come here and the city's struggled to be able to provide for them with what the mayor has said many times, Eric Adams, uh, not enough help from the federal government. At the same time, you have this incident that highlights some of the tensions where You've got an assault on police officers trying to make an arrest by a group outside a migrant shelter. And then they are tracked down and arrested by detectives brought to court where the district attorney's office does not ask for them to be held on bail, even though they literally have no roots in the community here. Um, and now 
they are traveling, according to my sources in the NYPD, on a bus towards the Mexican border under false names after getting tickets from uh, a faith-based charity organization. So you see a lot of tension here and, um, and some anger on the idea of what the, what the police uh, detectives union, Paul DiGiacomo, is calling a broken criminal justice system. So some of these guys are on a bus. They're known to be on a bus. Can they be pursued, apprehended, and brought back here? So the obvious answer is not yes. <laughs> they were released on their own recognizance. So had they been held on bail, had they made bail, had there been restrictions saying don't leave town, um, that would be different. It would be a violation of the conditions. But since they were released on their own recognizance, the assumption has to be innocent until proven guilty. That's a a pillar of the Constitution, but also that they'll return to court. It's just that generally people who are going to return to court don't travel under false names towards the Mexican border after they've assaulted a police officer. So this is what's stirring anger with the, the detectives union, the police union, and the critics of criminal justice reform bills. And that was a local prosecutor's decision not to seek bail in that case? That's right. But So you have a district attorney yeah. who doesn't ask to set bail. Yeah. And then you have a judge who doesn't bring up the question, shouldn't we set bail here? Uh, because it's a bailable offense, right. even under the new laws. And it's a crime where you have to weigh what is the likelihood of their return to court, which I think is getting thinner by the minute. Let, let, me, uh, let me play some sound from the NYPD chief of patrol about this. Listen reprehensible cowards you have eight people attacking a lieutenant and a cop running up to them trying to kick him in the face and kick him in their face you want to know why our cops are getting assaulted there's no consequences and we must change this end of story please seem ticked off to say the least. And, you know, I don't think we've heard the last of this story, but we'll stay on it. All right, John Miller, thank you so much for this reporting. This was your exclusive reporting, I should say. All right, back to Congress, where we have an important update on the House Ethics Committee investigation into Congressman Matt Gates. A source says members have reached out to someone who was a key witness in the federal investigation of Gates that ended a year ago, a sign that this ethics investigation might be expanding. Paula Reed joins us now with the latest on this. Paula, who is this witness? How did they figure into the Ethics Committee investigation? Well, John, I want to be clear. We are not talking about the woman who was still 17 when she allegedly had a sexual encounter with the congressman. We reported last week that that individual has been contacted by the committee. Now we are talking about a different woman. She's a former Capitol Hill staffer who's been linked romantically to the congressman as far back as 2017. And that time period is significant because that's when the congressman allegedly had sex with a minor. Now, this ex-girlfriend ended up really being a key witness in the federal investigation into the congressman. She was granted immunity for any criminal uh, liability she could potentially have, and she testified before the grand jury in that investigation. But of course, the Justice Department wrapped up its probe into the congressman last year without any charges being filed. Now, this outreach is significant because it's another sign that this ethics probe is expanding to include looking at potential sex trafficking, uh, possible illicit drug use, and also these questions about whether the congressman received anything improper in terms of trips and other gifts he may have received. These are the kinds of things this ex-girlfriend was asked about in the federal investigation and may be asked about here. 
but she is not expected to cooperate voluntarily in the ethics probe, so it is expected they would likely have to subpoena her. What's Congressman Gates saying about all this? So Congressman Gates clearly not very happy about the ethics probe. He had previously blamed former House Speaker Kevin McCarthy for resurrecting this ethics probe that had been put on hold while the federal investigation moved forward. Now, after CNN broke the news that this ethics investigation, they were starting to reach out to witnesses, Gates privately blamed McCarthy and, of course, was behind the push to oust McCarthy from his speakership. Now, today, uh, Gates responded with a statement saying the ethics committee is engaging in payback against me for ousting the person who singularly appointed every Republican. Now, McCarthy has denied being uh, really the power behind this ethics probe. And I also want to point out, John, that since McCarthy uh, has been ousted, this investigation has not only continued, it has expanded and become much more aggressive than it was when he was Speaker. All right, Paula Reed, CNN Chief Legal Affairs Correspondent, thank you very much. Just ahead, the story of a closely divided electorate in a deep fake scandal days before votes were cast that may have had an effect on the outcome. This is a cautionary tale for U.S. politics. Next. Grief is a human experience, and the care we receive should be too. Evernorth Behavioral Health ensures all members have access to live, specialized support in person or virtually with a 100% follow-up commitment to make sure they get the help they need. There's always a person there guiding your employees using data-driven risk monitoring tools so bottled-up feelings don't turn into further suffering. With Evernorth's wide range of behavioral solutions, care can be personalized, simple, and more accessible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash grief support. The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish. Celebrities of all kinds are speaking publicly about their therapeutic trips, so to speak. It turns out there is a burgeoning industry ready to serve the new influx of people who find themselves turning away from traditional mental health therapy. The gap between what we know and what we don't about psychedelic therapy. Listen to The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish, on your favorite podcast app. It has been more than a week since a robocall to voters used an AI voice of President Biden to tell them not to vote in the New Hampshire primary, and we still do not know who was behind it. It's the sort of deep fake dirty trick that worries election experts, particularly as AI-generated political speech exists in a kind of legal gray area, and lawmakers are far from any kind of legislative solution. There is no indication that this robocall affected results, but Donny O'Sullivan reports on a close election in Europe where a last-minute deepfake may have had an effect. Do you think this, does this sound like you? It does sound like me. It sounds like him, but it isn't him. This is Michael Szymedzka. He is the leader of the main opposition party here in Slovakia, and on the eve of this country's elections last year, he was the target of a deepfake. My party was, was advocating a, a strong pro-Western, pro-European uh, course to help itself fend off the Russian aggression. Just two days before voting began in that high-stakes election, this audio tape began circulating online. It purported to be a recording of a conversation in which Shemejka talks about stealing the election. So this didn't come out of the blue. It came against the backdrop of, uh, of a narrative that the elections were to be legitimate, to be rigged. His party, Progressive Slovakia, went on to lose the election by a few points. Do you think this could have changed the results of the election? No way of knowing. No. Um, we have stats that on Facebook alone it had, you know, 
100,000 views, but it probably had some effect. Slovakia is a country of some five and a half million people, and it's bordered by Poland and Ukraine. So a lot of experts say Americans should be paying closer attention to what is happening here in Eastern Europe, as it could be a sign of what is to come in the United States. My warning is brace yourself for upcoming barrage of deepfakes. We'll be targeting presidential candidates in the US. Daniel Milo ran a government agency in Slovakia that countered disinformation. In my professional capacity, I do believe that this deepfake was part of a wider influence campaign by Russia to interfere into Slovak elections. On the same day the deepfake emerged, the Russian SVR Foreign Intelligence Agency published a press release that pushed a similar conspiracy theory that the US government and Shemechka were working to rig Slovakia's elections. The director of NATO Stratcom said the deepfake and that Russian statement simultaneously correspond to each other and promote the same false narrative. So you don't think the SVR's statement and the deepfake, the fact that they came out almost at the same time, you don't think that's a coincidence? No, I don't think that's a coincidence at all. It's much more likely explanation to me at least is that this is all part of a wider operation that was aimed to disrupt the outcome of the elections as such. One of the earliest posts of this deepfake came from a pro-Russian politician in Slovakia who also pushed election conspiracy theories on Russian TV. Some of the first people to share it on social media here seem to be pretty Russia-friendly politicians. They are. Um, they are Russia-friendly politicians. It can't be definitively proven that this has some Russian origin. But, uh, of course, a loss for progressive Slovakia and a win for the other side would and does serve Russian interests, that's for sure. Kremlin officials did not reply to requests for comment. But even today, months after the elections here in Slovakia, there are still versions of that deepfake circulating on social media, including on Facebook. Facebook uh, reaction was very inconsistent and incoherent. In some cases, they just put a label that, you know, this is most likely disinformation. In other cases, they removed the audio recording, but yet in other cases, they left the video untouched. What's your message to Facebook? Well, guys, put your house in order. Asked about AI misinformation, Facebook's parent company told CNN, we label it and downrank it in feed so fewer people see it. But CNN found multiple instances where the company did not label this deepfake and their statement did not explain why. Regardless, once a deepfake spreads, the damage can be done. Even some of Shemechka's own supporters were confused. People who are educated follow politics they understand uh, what's at stake, but still were confused by the... Video. Really? Yeah. Wow. So people who are politically engaged, supporters of you... Absolutely. So I think this might be the year when we see a you know, deepfake boom in, in election campaigns all across the world. That is ominous with our election just ahead. Doni is with us now. You mentioned this could be a sign of what's to come in U.S. elections. What is the U.S. government doing about this? Yeah, absolutely, John. From U.S. government officials that we have spoken to, uh, this is something that is very, very much on their radar. And there are concerns uh, about how this could play a factor in not just the presidential election, but elections all down the ballot and all across the country. And the thing is, this technology, you know, to make fakes like this, to make a fake of my voice uh, or your voice, John, uh, 
now the technology only need a few minutes, sometimes even less than a minute of somebody's voice, audio of their voice, and you can make it sound like they have said anything. So in the past, this type of thing, you know, might have been uh, only available in the realm of uh, nation state actors and, and governments to create this sort of disinformation. Uh, but now anybody can do it. And I think that's that's going to be the real big concern as we go into the election. All too easy. Donnie, fascinating report. Thank you very much. Thanks. So what do you do if people are not saying nice things about you online? If you're China, apparently you censor them. How the government there is doing their best to wipe the Internet clean of anything negative about one of their major sources of pride. That's next. China is known for cracking down on critics, and now the government's Internet censors have focused on a growing target. Critics of the nation's economy. Details from CNN's Ivan Watson. The world's second largest economy had a tough year in 2023. Now, one of Beijing's answers to the challenge, ban and erase criticism of it. In December, China's Ministry of State Security issued this order. Resolutely crack down and punish illegal criminal activities that endanger national security in the economic security field. Apparently, that includes disappearing negative commentary from the already heavily censored Chinese Internet. On December 1st, this prominent economic professor, Liu Jipeng, advised people not to invest in the falling Chinese stock market. Now, all of Professor Liu's social media accounts are frozen. And when you click to follow him, you get this message, which translates, it is forbidden to follow this user due to their violation of relevant rules. CNN found similar freezes temporarily imposed on at least five other Chinese economic analysts. Also removed from the internet, this documentary highlighting economic hardship among Chinese migrant workers. I think the Chinese economy is at a cliff edge at the moment. I don't think it has started falling off the cliff yet but it's getting to a point where things can get uh, much more difficult. Officially, the Chinese economy grew by more than 5% last year, but the country's youth unemployment rate keeps hitting record highs. Then there's China's all-important real estate sector, which along with related industries, used to make up 30% of the Chinese economy. This is the Hong Kong office of the biggest symbol of China's real estate crisis, Evergrande. Until two years ago, this company was the largest home builder in China, employing some 200,000 people. Then the company defaulted on its debt, and now a court here in Hong Kong has ordered the liquidation of Evergrande. Across the country, protests as angry new home buyers demand completion of unfinished homes that they've already paid for. Perhaps the only other sector gloomier is the country's stock market. In the past three years, the combined Chinese stock market lost more than $6 trillion. I haven't made any money out of the stock market, so I sold all my stocks. The Chinese economy is strong and it will be stronger, says this Beijing resident. Perhaps she got the message from this recent meeting of the country's top propaganda officials. Their order, amplify bright prospects of the economy as China heads into 2024. 
So before I bring Ivan in, I want to show you CNN's feed of this program as it's being seen in China, or more accurately, at what Chinese censors replaced it with as soon as we mentioned the story that you just saw. Again, color bars there. It's not going out. So Ivan, if China is censoring economists and CNN's reporting about it, and most of their economic data is released, it comes from the Chinese government, how hard is it to get a true picture of the state of the Chinese economy? It's a big question. It's long been a big question for economists and uh, investors, the reliability of these numbers, uh, especially back in August when the government announced it would, would stop publishing youth unemployment numbers after several months of record highs. The mood has changed a lot. You know, foreign companies, they used to line up to try to get access to the huge Chinese market. Last year, for the first time in 25 years, John, foreign direct investment into China went into the negative. That means foreign companies appeared to be pulling out more money than they were investing into their corporations, uh, into their operations. Companies like Vanguard, that asset management company, telling CNN it was selling its stake and closing its office in Shanghai at the end of last year. So the Chinese government, it's got a long way to go to rebuild its credibility with international corporations, and also, I'd argue, with ordinary Chinese consumers. And I'm not sure that censorship and ordering officials to paint rosy pictures about the economy, that that's a winning strategy to build consumer confidence in an economy that clearly has some big problems. I have a revealing report there. Thank you very much. We'll be right back. The news continues. The Source with Caitlin Collins starts now. Grief is a human experience, and the care we receive should be too. Evernorth Behavioral Health ensures all members have access to live, specialized support in person or virtually with a 100% follow-up commitment to make sure they get the help they need. There's always a person there, guiding your employees using data-driven risk monitoring tools so bottled-up feelings don't turn into further suffering. With Evernorth's wide range of behavioral solutions, care can be personalized, simple, and more accessible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash grief support. Grief is a human experience, and the care we receive should be too. Evernorth Behavioral Health ensures all members have access to live, specialized support in person or virtually with a 100% follow-up commitment to make sure they get the help they need. There's always a person there, guiding your employees using data-driven risk monitoring tools so bottled-up feelings don't turn into further suffering. With Evernorth's wide range of behavioral solutions, care can be personalized, simple, and more accessible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash grief support. 